Paddle on RNZ National. It is wonderful to have your company as always. Uh, I'm Wallace Chapman with me, David Farrar and Sue Kedgley. State High 15 was closed near Karaka Road due to flooding. It has just reopened. Now, people will have to pay to drive over a new highway north of Auckland. A new $830 million road connecting State Highway 1 to the Whangaporoa Peninsula will be tolled. Hibiscus Coast commuters will pay $3 per trip during peak traffic from 6am to 9am and 4pm to 7 and 2 bucks outside rush hours. Heavy vehicles will pay double those rates, while public transport and cyclists, they can use it free of charge. The road will cost $3 million to maintain. The toll roads, toll roads rather, are not often used in New Zealand. They are quite common overseas, however. So to cast his eye across this, we brought in Matt Lowry from the Greater Auckland Transport website. Kia ora, Matt. Kia ora, Wallace. First up, an explainer, what are toll roads? Is it OK to call them user pays? Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, they're not fully user pays. They're just partially partially user pays because the toll doesn't cover the full cost of yeah. operating and also building the road. Uh, but they are to, to help manage demand and to recover some cost. And some listeners will recall paying a toll to go over the Auckland Harbour Bridge. Anyone recall that, including me? Um, uh, but are they more of an overseas feature, Matt? Um, well, we do have a few in New Zealand already, particularly just north of, of this new road is, is that the, um, the the road to Pūhoi, and that, that through the, through the tunnels there in Johnson's Hill, that, that yeah. is a toll road, and there's a couple of toll roads in Tauranga as well. But to this one, is it fair, do you think, to charge commuters $3 a trip in the peak? Um, the I mean, it's a dollar cheaper than Waka Kotahi had consulted the public on, but nonetheless, $6 to uh, get into town. Yeah, absolutely. The project has been on the books for quite a few decades, and the entire time it's been on the books, it has been under the premise that it would be a toll road, and that's what locals agreed to in order to get it built. And then what happened is as soon as the government confirmed construction, and the construction about quadrupled from what it was on, what it was originally planned to be, um, up to $830 million. As soon as it was, the government confirmed that they would start building it, the locals then said it's not fair that we should have to pay a toll on it after saying they would pay a toll to, to get it built. So I think it's absolutely fair that, they, that a toll goes on there. OK, before we go to our panellists, fair to charge tolls, Matt Lowry, on top of the regional fuel tax. Wouldn't you call that double charging? No, because the regional fuel tax... Is, doesn't cover this part of this project. It has never, never been part of that, that regional fuel tax funding, so it's a, it's a completely separate issue. Um, regional fuel tax is covering a wide range of projects, including public transport services that will help, that will serve, this, that will run on this road, uh, but it's, it's, not covering, it's not covering part of the construction of this. OK, Sue, casually this flash new toll road, $3 per trip during peak traffic. Uh, heavy vehicles, double that, public transport free. Your thoughts? Well, I favour toll roads for specific projects that probably wouldn't otherwise get built, um, especially if they can bring a project forward. And if there's a non-toll road alternative that people who can't afford it can use. But the interesting thing, Wallace, is what you've already touched on. There 
tolls are sort of political hot potatoes. They're incredibly unpopular. Mm. And so notoriously hard to introduce. And you talked about the Auckland Harbour Bridge. You mentioned the toll there. Well, in 1984, Muldoon virtually won the election on the strength of his bribe to remove the toll. And his government did that, of course, in 1984. Is that why it was removed? Yeah, and um, no government has, has reinstated it since then. And in, polit- in um, Transmission Gully, for decades, they promised that it would be funded by a toll. But in the end, politicians backed off uh, because they feared a voter backlash. Who text me, 210, call the Auckland Harbour Bridge tolls. Your thoughts on what Sue said, It was Matt. two shillings and six pence, yeah. the toll. <laughs> Matthew. Yeah, so, I mean... Transmission Gully is a good point, and what, the other reason that, that the toll, was, particularly in this road, is, is needed is because if you don't have it, it will actually make congestion worse for a lot of people on the North Shore, uh, because it will encourage, because it's a shorter a route, it will encourage more people to, to drive it instead of taking alternatives. But Transmission Gully was an interesting case because the, the analysis said if, if they put a toll on it, no one would use it, or fewer people would use it than expected. So they, they sort of removed the toll because they put this big investment in place and no one was going to, no one was going to drive on it otherwise. So the, um, the, the tolling is absolutely a contentious issue um, for politicians, but, but in this case in particular, there's a strong argument for why it should be there. All right, David Farrow, you'd be a, big, you'd be a fan of user pays here. You'd be a big fan of this. Well, I'd go beyond this. I actually think pretty much every road in New Zealand should be a toll road. Um, and if you think that Goodness. sounds hilariously bad, we're going to end up there because petrol tax as a way to fund the roads, as more and more cars like myself go electric, mm. uh, petrol tax isn't going to be the way you fund the roads. So either you get, you're going to have road user charges and you either do it where you just top up the number of kilometres or more sensibly, the really nice expensive roads that cost more, that are more popular, that get more congestion, you should pay more for. Yeah, there's issues around privacy, GPS, how you do it. But as a principle, I absolutely think every road you travel on, you should pay for because someone has to. That's how they get built. What do you think of that, listeners? Every road in Aotearoa should be a toll road. Um, Minister Michael would say that. I'm not standing for office, you note. No. <laughs> we, we have to, I mean, all, we're paying for all of our roads, either from our taxes, from our regional fuel taxes, or by a top, one way or another, we're paying for them. Yeah, I mean, Michael Woods says, uh, Matt, that by using a tolling model, the community can be assured that the road will be maintained to a higher level. What, what do you make of that? What's he saying here? Is he saying that the ones that aren't being told won't necessarily get the same sort of maintenance? Uh, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not quite sure on, on what that one, what that one means. To be honest, um, you know, we, we do have levels of certain levels of maintenance that do take place, and you know, it's a pretty big new new road you would expect it should be in pretty good nick for quite some time um, but we obviously do need to maintain them and maintenance is actually becoming a really big issue for roads in New Zealand you know we've had issues with obviously potholes and what have you as we've got heavier vehicles now and causing more damage to roads so yeah we, we do absolutely need to make sure we've, we've got funding to maintain them um, because otherwise we're going to be in real trouble in, in a few years' time. OK, well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because this has been uh, arguably one of the issues uh, of 2023, that is, the potholes. Mm. Uh, it's been a big issue on the panel. 
as well, Matt. And here you are having a toll road uh, in part to help with that maintenance. Do you think that uh, the aspect of tolling roads in New Zealand... David Farrow's actually got a bit of a point here. We need to look at the, the way we fund our roading a bit more closely. Yeah, we, we need to think about that. If we think about something like um, just a bit of a different project, like Waterview. So, you know, we built the Waterview tunnels. Um, they, they are hugely expensive to maintain. That They cost about $16 million a year, I understand. That, that's what I was told back in, when they opened. And the amount of traffic that travels through them, even if you took all the petrol taxes from that, is not enough to cover the cost of maintaining those tunnels Gosh. every year. And so... We, we have to make sure that we've got ways to fund our our road network to maintain it up to a, up to an acceptable standard. And, and you know, a lot of the damage that's been done on our roads is due to heavier trucks that have been introduced in the last Absolutely. decade. Absolutely. So. And, and so we need to. And so you know, we we have to have a way of funding that. And some of that, you know, that's a real crisis at the moment of how we fund our. And as David mentioned, you know, electric vehicles are not, are not currently charged. But you know, they will, they presumably will be in the future. But we need to find ways of funding it because our current ways of funding transport is not going to be sufficient long-term. Quite the issue, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, thanks for um, enlightening us. That's Matt Lowry from the Greater Auckland Transport blog. Yeah, quite a bit of response to this. Uh, Linny says, 1971, as a little girl squished in between two brothers in the backseat of the Hillman Hunter mustard station wagon, I was given the job by Dad to lean through the driver's window and hand the toll man a 20-cent piece going north. Very special memory. Well, Linny, um, I did the same thing. I was super excited as a young kid to be able to hand over the money. Um, but it's quite the issue, isn't it, uh, Sue? It may be we might return to this issue of actually um, tolling more roads in New Zealand as a way to actually get that maintenance up. Well, as long as the politicians have the nerve to uh, impose the tolls, because it's incredibly easy for a opposition party to say, well, we'll remove the, poll, the, the toll and... Um, you know, use it as a political bribe. And before we move on around the panel, you both think that public transport should be exempt, David? Uh, well, I, exempt's probably the wrong word because um, public transport, you've got people paying a fare to use that public transport. So there's a form of pain there. What it will come down to is, is what proportion that should be. Sue? Uh, yes, well, we we do pay for our public transport. I mean, it's subsidised, but you know, we, we, everyone has to pay. Well, except of course for uh, gold card members um, at, in certain hours of the day. But yes, we we already do pay for public transport. Well, interestingly, the real free riders are the cyclists. There's no yeah. easy way to charge them, but really, cyclists do use the roads. They should pay a lot less because they don't cause as much damage, but ideally... They should pay nothing, should right? They should pay nothing. Cyclists pay for the roads too. Okay, uh, 19 past four. Interestingly, most people are in support uh, of tolling. Interesting, Interesting stuff. Yeah, 19 past four, the panel. Get this. More than 1,000 years of annual leave is owed to New Zealand senior doctors, four centuries worth to junior doctors. Senior hospital clinicians have unclaimed annual leave of 1.72 million hours, or 1,024 years, based on uh, over 5,000 staff. Now, those figures were released to the Association for Salaried Medical Specialists via the OIA. Some doctors are reported as saying that they 
can't take any time off, otherwise, more than two days off, rather, otherwise they risk further surgery cancellations. It demonstrates just how under the pump doctors are in this country. This reported in the Post today. Dr Deborah Powell is National Secretary for the New Zealand Resident Doctors Association. Dr Powell, kia ora. Kia ora. Well, quite extraordinary uh, statistic there. Quite a build-up of leave. Why is it not being taken? Because we can't, um, because if we take our leave, we will leave patients without doctors to care for them is the bottom line. Um, Our workforce crisis is such that we just don't have enough doctors to cover patient care if leave is taken. Forgoing leave for the sake of keeping productivity going, I mean, that surely cannot be sustainable. Being tired all the time, that would surely carry risks working in the health sector. Oh, absolutely. It's something we are deeply concerned about. Uh, whilst the motivation of the doctors is um, you know, extraordinarily good, the fact of the matter is that they're burning out and they're no good to their patients if they burn out. So getting a balance right to get our people um, time off to rest and recuperate so they can be the best doctor they can be is something that we need to have addressed. But our problem at the moment is that our pipeline is so broken that, um, you know, what do you do? And, and we aren't just talking about um, waiting lists and things like that. As, as the listeners will know, our waiting list problem is, is just huge. But, um, you know, many of the doctors that um, were quoted in the post this morning uh, were talking about acute services. Uh, patients who can't say, hang on, you'll have to wait another, goodness knows how long. Uh, but patients who have to be seen now. So, it, it, look, it, it is a real dilemma. Before we go to our panellists, uh, psychologically, Deborah, too, whatever job you're in, you've you got to take some time off uh, psycholo- mentally um, knowing that as I was reading often your leave is automatically declined can't yeah. be good for your mental health No it's not and, and when those automatic declines come through honestly our members reaction is well I won't repeat it on radio but you can imagine and your heart just sinks doesn't it I think that the other frustrating thing is that we know that there are things that we can do and we need to get on and do them, which will turn this around. And so I think that's the other side of this in terms of just how disheartening it is. There, we do know how to turn it around. We just need someone to make some decisions to let us get on and do that. Okay, we'll come to that solution soon. Let's go on the panel and you can re- reply to them. Deborah, David, you first. Uh, thanks, Wallace. I didn't find the number reported that useful in terms of um, a 1,000 days or years i can't remember what what because it years. depends on how many doctors you have etc it looks like on average there's eight weeks owing which is double your annual so that certainly suggests a problem but what i still don't know is is this staff who've worked there for 10 or 15 years so they've just slowly accumulated it or is this over a small period of time so i'm not sure if you'll know this deborah but what i'd really be interested in is how much annual leave in the last 12 months have medical staff actually managed to take? I presume they get at least 20 days, if not 30, et cetera. Are they only you know, getting the statutory holidays or are they getting at least five, 10 days a year or where is it? Yeah, look, really good question. And obviously for our more senior colleagues, the accumulation over time is a greater factor than for resident doctors who are very much 
you know, younger in the system. For the, for the younger people, um, we are having trouble getting two weeks leave in a year. And um, we are increasingly have to la- having to lay down the law under the Holidays Act. Employees, if they apply for two weeks, must be given two weeks leave a year, uh, regardless of entitlement. Obviously, the employer should allow for the whole entitlement, but they must have that two weeks. And we're increasingly having to demand that two weeks be given to people. So um, that's the sort of level we're at. There is still annual leave being taken. It, it's not a... Um, no one is taking annual leave. So let's make that clear. We are still getting some leave, but increasingly we're having to demand it. So, Well, it's, you know, it's absolutely shocking. I mean, how are you going to recruit, let alone retain doctors, when they know they're facing these, working these ludicrous hours, the sort of burnout, chronic staff shortages? And, of course, the other concern is the effect on patients because... When doctors are exhausted and sleep deprived, they're inevitably going to make mistakes. And actually, this affects the morale of doctors as well as the patients involved. But, um, and I actually know a doctor, a, a registered, you know, young junior doctor who was put on a ward without, you know, other staff to back up, made a mistake and was so traumatized uh, she left the profession. But, oh, you know, dear. one obvious uh, solution would be to use nurses for more and more healthcare work. But of course, since we're 4,000 nurses short, that won't work either. So it, it just speaks to the extraordinary yeah. crisis in our health system. Well, okay, Deborah, then what is uh, a fix? What is a solution to get that leave down? Okay, well, the first thing is retention. Uh, Let's hang on to the ones we've got. And it might surprise you to know that resident doctors, despite the fact they're training to be specialists in this country, they have no guarantee of employment as a specialist. So the first thing we think needs to be done is guarantee employment as a specialist to all of our vocational trainees, our resident doctors. That'll serve two purposes. First of all, it'll it'll be a retention stimulus to resident doctors to stay in the system because they know they're guaranteed a job right. once they finish their training and it'll increase the number of SMOs we have. So a pretty simple thing. We've asked the Potter Aura to do that and we're waiting for a response. Um, secondly, we need to increase the number of medical students we have. You may have heard me talk about this before, but yeah. the workload keeps going up. Our over-reliance on overseas trained doctors is exactly that. It's an over-reliance. We have 60% of doctors in New Zealand are overseas trained, and whilst um, we appreciate their assistance and their work in this country, and we welcome them into our system, the fact of the matter is we don't produce enough of our own. We need another two to 300 medical school placements per year. The problem there, it costs to produce a medical student. Well, of course it does. But we're getting costs throughout our system in other ways because we don't have enough of them. So we need to increase our medical student numbers. And the third thing we've been calling for is under Tafata Aura, we've got a single employer. Can we please have a single system that looks after our resident doctors? There is a tension between how much service we deliver and how much training to be the SMO we're meant to be becoming and if you've got too much service, you don't get enough of that training. And that balance has been disturbed. Oh. There's far too much service. Give us some more training. Concentrate a little bit on our wellness, so getting us our annual leave. And we will retain resident doctors. We'll have better trained resident doctors. We'll have better trained SMOs. So a little bit of a balance okay. shift there. Dr. Powell, thank you for your time on the panel. appreciate it. That's uh, the National Secretary for the New Zealand Resident Doctors Association, 
One of the fixes is training more medical students. We might come back to that on the panel uh, later in the week. But it's 27 past four. You're on the panel with Sue Kedley and David Farrer. And I want to ask them, is it time to pledge allegiance? Members of the public have been asked by the Archbishop of Canterbury to pledge allegiance to the new monarch out loud and in their homes during King Charles III coronation. It's called the homage of the people and includes those in other realms and territories. So I'd like to invite our panellists today to do some early pledging. Sue Kedgley, would you be interested in pledging your oath of allegiance to the king? Yes, this well, afternoon. I will most certainly not be heeding the call of the Archbishop to joyfully swear my allegiance to King Charles and his heirs and successors, such as Prince Andrew, um, or in fact for any other unelected leader. Um, and, you know, it, it really, the, it, it, I, ironically, I think that they were, this was a sort of bright idea that they thought was going to, um, you know, democratise their this coronation, but I think yes. it's just going to backfire and fuel the Republican movement as this sort of feudal pledge. It just sort of highlights how anachronistic, okay. undemocratic and irrelevant well, that's the monarchy is in our lives. That's disappointing. I was hoping you'd pledge allegiance live. All right, I know that David Farrell, what about you, David? Uh, so cringeworthy. Uh, well, is that a yes or a no? Is that a yes or no? That's a definite no, and I should declare I'm a former member of the Republican Movement National Council, so it's not a surprising no. But look, even if you're a monarchist, I can understand that public officials, MPs, etc., swear allegiance to the crown because you're a constitutional monarchy. But when you're asking people to stand up in your bedrooms and That's living right. rooms and do it, it just like they won't do it except the most. Oh, passionate. Well, well, well. it's the sort it's of thing, thing that you'd, you'd expect a cult leader to, to sort of require this. <laughs> that or perhaps is just a the public oaths of royalty say. that the it's North a, Koreans have to it's make. It's a democratization. It is a democratization, both of you, of the coronation. It's merely a show of good faith. It's a demonstration of goodwill as to well-known public figures on the panel this afternoon. Even just to do the short version, would you not like to say, may the king live forever, Sue? Oh, no. And the the thing that, I mean, I was appalled when I heard this. And then I was even more appalled to think as an MP, I was forced to formally pledge this silly uh, allegiance, not once but four times. And and, and we need to update this uh, the oath of office for members of parliament. New citizens have to uh, pledge this ridiculous oath. I mean, we're not King Charles subjects. We're citizens of New Zealand. OK, what about you, David? You're not going to join us in the short I, version? May the king live forever? I definitely don't As a show want of goodwill? Forever. As a... Um, I'd actually, you know, if you have to have a king, I think William would be more acceptable than Charles. So would it be unpatriotic to say short live the king and okay. bring on King William? A- All right. Actually, Wallace, you might be surprised to know I've always been a secret admirer of Prince Charles, now King Charles, because of his commitment to the environment, you know, the organic production, natural health care. So I've secretly admired this man, but I have no intention of swearing allegiance to the man. 
Would you text me 2101? Are you going to uh, join in in the democratisation of the coronation? And will, in the comfort of your own bedroom, with your gym jams on, pledge allegiance? Text me 2101. Or do you want to do it on the panel this afternoon? Let me know. You're on the panel, David Farah and Sue Kesley.